0: Welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. We are joined today by an old buddy of mine and a colleague, Kevin Van Valkenburg. Kevin is a senior writer at ESPN the Magazine and ESPN.com, where he writes primarily about football and golf. Prior to coming to ESPN, Kevin spent 11 years at the Baltimore Sun. In 2015, he was the T. Anthony Polner Distinguished Professor at the University of Montana, where he taught a class on storytelling. And welcome, Kevin.
1: Thanks, buddy. Appreciate uh, you having me on. I'm pretty excited.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure of mine. Um, I wanted to ask you first a question that I don't think I've ever asked you. And mm-hmm. one of the cool things about this podcast is I have friends on, and I get to ask questions that just have never come up in conversations over beers and whiskey. Mm-hmm. And that is, when did you decide to become a
1: writer? So, I guess the shorter version of that is that my um, my mom was a journalism professor when I was growing up, and so it was kind of in my blood a little bit. Um, and I always was like a big reader and loved like magazines. You know, I'd I would wait until they deliver the mail on Fridays. that Sports Illustrated would show up, and then I'd run over and to my you know, to a table or to a bedroom and just read the thing just cover to cover um the longer version of it is that i went to college to play football i was a walk-on at the university of montana uh-huh. and um they like had recruited me but they were sort of like you know we don't kind of have a scholarship for you but maybe you know soon so i kind of passed on playing scholarship uh football at, at some division like um nai schools or division two schools and like you know, Willamette or Carroll College or, you know, places like that throughout the Northwest and went to the University of Montana. And I was kind of like a, just like a third string linebacker for a couple of years and saw a little bit like, you know, played a little bit my freshman year after red shirting, but just kind of at some point kind of came to the conclusion. I just can't, I'm not good enough to do this. Like I'm going to grind my whole sort of college career doing this and I'm going to only end up ever being like a backup. And it kind of, I just sort of realized, like I, I felt like it wasn't a particularly good plan for the future, and the student newspaper was kind of a much more fun kind of idea. Uh, of I was doing journalism anyway, but didn't really think that I was necessarily going to do it for sure. I just needed to declare a major, so I was like, oh, well, my mom's the you know interim dean of the journalism school right now, so I'll just declare journalism. And uh, when I, I kind of realized that. Um, I just I couldn't wasn't ever going to be great at football and so I quit the football team and and just walked in the student newspaper and started covering women's basketball and soccer and then eventually later the football team again when I was uh, and I knew all those guys so it was easy to like know where the good features were and that ended up helping me produce a bunch of good clips and it was a little weird to like Walk into the football offices, you know, a year and a half later, and be interviewing the same coaches that I had played for, and you know, pressure like the power dynamic was a little flipped (laughs) (laughs) because I I could could sort of ask them questions and not feel scared that they would make me run gassers for hours if I pissed them off. So that's kind of how that uh, came to be. And then when I was uh, a senior, I really didn't think that I was gonna like have some great journalism career. I, I wanted to badly to someday like write for Sports Illustrated, but i've kind of well i had a professor in college who had sort of told me you know you got to realize that in order to write for a sports illustrated you know you have to be like you have to work at the Missoulian. that was our local paper for two three years just to be able to get a job in spokane and then you have to work there for five years and then you have to get a job at seattle and and then hope that you're one of the best people in the whole country that then gets noticed by sports illustrated so it's just not a very like realistic long-term path And I was kind of crushed by that whole thing, and so I was like, I don't really know what I'm gonna do with um, with my future. I wasn't uh, certain. I wasn't sure that I was gonna graduate in four years. I kind of had a few like extra credits left over, and then all of like sudden, out of nowhere, the Baltimore Sun offered me a two year internship that they then said was gonna turn into a job, and I was kind of like, well, I've just sort of skipped all the steps that this you know sort of grizzled old professor said that I had to take <laughs> so if I can jump right to like the major metro newspaper then that's realistic uh, and of course then I had to spend another 11 years working at the sun until I was got up enough sort of guts to really go for a job at, at a major magazine but that was kind of a uh, how wow. it came to be well I had no idea there was such
0: a thing as a 2 year internship
1: yeah it was um it's, it's interesting. The Sun didn't doesn't really do it anymore. Um, I don't I don't think they kind of ended their two year internship program, which is kind of a shame. But it used to be the way that they would get like a lot of really good young talent, and you know, it, it's sort of and like, for cheap, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, you're you, you figure out pretty quick whether you can do it or not. But they, um,
0: it's a two year tryout, totally, right? totally. Yeah, and
1: yeah. and they had been had been going for like seventy years when I got there, and they had never mm-hmm. not hired uh, like a, a two year intern after their two year internship. So it was kind of like a guarantee that you were going to get a job, you know, after your, they just were going to pay you at a much lower rate, uh, starting out. And so it was, I mean, by, I would say I covered crime for the first six months or so and like court stuff. And then they threw me over into sports. And within a year they were like, do you want to go to the Olympics? We need an Olympics writer. And you seem like you can write on deadline and you can write features and you know, we just, we need somebody who can do all those things under, um, you know, a tight deadline pressure. And this is your chance to show what you got. And I was like, Oh my God. Okay. I guess. Yeah. That sounds great.
0: And you, and you were probably what 23 then or 22?
1: Yeah. 24. Yeah. 24.
0: Wow. When you first go to the Olympics, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. That's a charmed existence. Oh,
1: totally charmed. I mean, I had to, there was a lot of grinding after that, but I remember having a conversation at like dinner, with, with like all the LA times people, all the Tribune company people were there and like Jay Donde and Bill Plashke were sort of teasing me or like, you're coming for our jobs, aren't you? And it was like, <laughs> I was like, Oh, I guess so. Yeah. That's just... <laughs> I mean, I'm totally, totally intimidated. I had no idea. Like, you know, and, and so it wasn't, I mean, it took me another decade to even be considered like their equals in some ways, <laughs> but I'll always kind of remember that dinner of, of them kind of teasing me about like, you were coming to high schools before you got here. So how important was your
0: experience playing football in sort of shaping your future writing about the NFL? Like how much how how often yeah. do you draw upon that experience?
1: I do draw upon it. Uh, I think I understand locker room dynamics pretty well uh-huh. because I was in one. I mean I don't I always I always try to make sure that I let people know like I I'm not I wasn't good at this. Like I was, you know, <laughs> a third string linebacker on a one double A team. It was a really good one double a program. We played in the national championship my red shirt freshman year, and Randy Moss was on the other side of the field. So I briefly wow. inhabited the same kind of metaphysical universe that Randy Moss <laughs> did as a freshman football player. <laughs> <laughs> but uh I think that they I it's what's I'll tell you when it's interesting is like I John Harbaugh and I had a really good relationship when I covered the Ravens for a while until uh, some of the Ray Rice stuff. But right. um Right, which he, we'll which we'll talk about, we'll talk about
0: right
1: his father coached at Western Kentucky, which was one double A school. And they were, he had, I think won a national championship at Western Kentucky. So when I talked to John about uh, a little bit about my career, it was like he, to him, football was football. And he, he had so much respect for his dad that, you know, he, he knew that like his dad had really good players at Western Kentucky. So if I had played at the same level, then I must on some level understand like things about football. And he, when he started reading the things that I wrote, it was like he, he told me a couple times, like, you get it. Like, you you understand, like, some of this stuff. And, you know, the the idea that, like, camaraderie matters a lot and and all that. And so I've never been, like, huge into, like, analytics. And I'm not – I don't ever pretend to be, like, an X's and O's person. But I do really understand, I think, how – like, how important, like, a quarterback is. I mean, I, I think that that's somehow – what analytics people sometimes miss is like the idea that like one quarterback is replaceable to the next, like those stats just translate. It doesn't really work that way. I think from someone who's kind of understood it, it's like the the way that that a quarterback kind of carries himself is so much more important to the whole locker room dynamic than you'd sort of understand if you hadn't kind of been a part of it. And and so I do think that some of that, it's certainly like when I Hung out with Carson Wentz in Fargo. There's another example. It's like he and I played at the exact same level of college football, and so he, we were doing like a photo shoot, and they, the ESPN photographers wanted him to throw passes, uh, like, and he was like, really, and so I was like, well, I was an old, you know, high school tight end and a and a linebacker in college, so I'll I'll run some routes for you and. I started to get kind of into it and he i like sort of dove for a pass and he laughed and he's like oh is this how it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> and i felt briefly mortified but i was like no like what if this guy turns into like a really great player like i want to be- say that like i caught balls from him and he got kind of into it and so we he probably threw me like 50 balls and only like two of them hit the ground and i was like i was running really hard and getting super excited it was like i dorked out in a major way but i was like this guy's about to be like the second pick of the draft like I'm going to catch passes from him, and this is not something that everyone can do.
0: I am so jealous right now, Kevin, <laughs> listening to you. I mean, you know, Wentz is a you know potential MVP this year, and yeah. for you to have done that then is so cool. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Uh, when Harbaugh said that to you, that's a big confidence boost, right? When when the when a a head football coach of the Ravens says to you, "Hey, man, you get this." Yeah. That's a, that puts, you know, that puts
1: some wind in your sails. He, he, when I left the sun, he told me, he said, I, I knew that you weren't going to be here very long because you get this on a, in a way that a lot of other people don't. And that was, that was meaningful to me. So he, Absolutely. he was willing to kind of give me time, even sometimes at the like annoyance of the PR staff. Like I remember once I, uh, even when I got to ESPN, I was writing a story about Tori Smith and his brother had died and it was, it was kind of a, John's a religious guy and Tori was a religious guy. And there were sort of some religious moments to the story about how, how they kind of bonded and sort of, you know, had a, a team prayer the night before. And so I asked John briefly after his press conference, if he would talk about it. And he was like, yeah, come into this office. And like the PR guys were sort of annoyed. because like, no one gets to go into that office. But John was just like, no, come on, come with me. I want to sit down and we can actually talk about this. Cause I know you're going to handle it respectfully. So that was kind of a cool uh, sort of like hat tip of like, you know, Someone's acknowledging you. You follow it. You understand it well enough to know you're going to get this right.
0: Now, when you were a kid, you read Sports Illustrated every week. So did I. I mean, when I was a kid, um, I tried to get published by Sports Illustrated in the, in the dorkiest way possible. <laughs> I wrote a letter every week, Kevin. To, nice. Yeah, every single week. And you know, in those days, I was eight or nine years old, maybe mm-hmm. 10 when I was doing this. They would send a, a card back. Well, thanks for your, thanks for your letter. We're not going to publish it, but try again. I, I think I had hundreds, of, a couple hundred of them. That's um, amazing. Yeah, I know. And so, yeah, when I was a kid, it was SI or the New York Times. Um, and, and obviously the equivalent of SI now, SI is still a great magazine, but d- mm-hmm. d- but diminished from yeah. from what it was, sure. obviously, in its heyday. Is now ESPN the magazine? So, um, when you were a kid w- with SI, who were your SI sort of writing heroes, and and was it really when you were at the Baltimore Sun and ha- had an opportunity to come to ESPN, did you really see it as okay? I'm getting to I'm getting to SI.
1: So uh, part of the reason I'll, say, I'll sort of couch this in two ways is part of the reason that SI was so special to me is that like. You know, this was pre like internet really, yeah. and so you couldn't go read the Washington Post. You couldn't go read the Boston Globe in Missoula, Montana. Like your only exposure to like national sports writing was Sports Illustrated, or I briefly had like a Sporting News uh, subscription, and I, I you couldn't. There was I wanted to get the National so badly when the National came out, but there was no way it was getting delivered to Missoula, Montana unless someone bundled it up in a package and sent it three weeks after it had sort of run. And you and you were not an in Inside Sports guy no i mean i <sighs> you might be too young actually for yeah that didn't that really that was, was, really, that yeah. was I'm, i'll am i be 40 in a couple weeks and that wasn't really okay. um that hot so i i mean i loved um I, the way that like when rick riley was like in his late 20s whatever mm-hmm. he was sort of playing with the form and so was gary smith in his in a totally different but on way in a way that i'm sure inspired like hundreds and thousands of dudes like me who wanted badly to sort of be writers. And it seemed like Riley was always doing something interesting or funny, and he could write funny, and he could also write really serious. And Gary could just get so deep into subjects. I remember reading about, it was not even one of Gary's like kind of super like well-known stories, but about Jamila Weidman, the freshman point guard for Stanford, and how she was John Edgar Weidman, the author's daughter. And her brother had been... Convicted of murder, uh, he, he just sort of flipped out one day and, and killed like a classmate, and she kept this like secret that her brother was like in prison, and that she she had sort of was like olive skinned and no one thought she was like really biracial, and so he he wrote this amazing story about how she kind of finally opened up about you know that her, her brother had done this thing and that actually her dad was black and her mom was white and oh, she felt really conflicted about this stuff, and I was just like I remember. I can't remember what I think it was 17 or something when I read it and I just thought, "Oh my god, this is what I want to do. I want to make people feel the way that I feel right now when they read my stories." And I don't know if that's ever happened or been true, but that's always what I have sort of thought about over the years. It's like just I'm chasing that feeling of like, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to f- frame the facts and the details of this person's story and I'm going to make someone feel that way when they read it." That's so cool. Well, you've certainly
0: done that multiple times. Um, and when you got to ESPN, was did it really feel like okay? I I've I've arrived. I mean, I've, I've accomplished, uh, uh, you know, a boy's dream.
1: I think I, I felt a little bit that, I mean, when I sort of got the job, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the dream that I've always wanted. And how did that happen? By the way, Kevin, I don't think I've ever asked you that question. Yeah. So, uh, it's right around the same time that you got hired. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think Chad was Chad Millman, our old boss. Um, he was really trying to, um, put his kind of stamp on the magazine and, and the, get bring in sort of new people to he were sort of his people and so i had um, someone had a friend of mine had given him my name and and he sort of said you know you should check this guy out and so i had sent him an email saying you know i'd love to come and pitch you ideas and i remember right you know i didn't really know what to expect and stuff and i said you know what what should i uh think of what should i do how should i handle this interview or whatever and right was like i'll just be the damn most cocky version of yourself you could muster because Chad likes confident people. And I was like, by the, All way, right. that,
0: by the way, that is a perfect imitation of our friend right Thank you. Perfect. Uh, that I've heard before, but I just, I can't, I can't hear that enough. That is perfect. So and it's actually very good
1: advice too. It was absolutely. I love Wright. I mean, he's, you know, yeah. I, I do that in front of him and he, he's like, that. that's goddamn good. Now sh- sh- <laughs> sh- shut your mouth. <laughs> but, uh, he, he was right. Like, but, I, but the
0: advice, the advice yeah. to step onto the campus in Bristol, um, with some swagger, mm-hmm. I wish I had that advice. So, so Kevin, when I got there, so I, I, around the same time I got the call from Chad mm-hmm. and I was at the time 16 years mm-hmm. and Chad's like, Hey, do you want to come up and have a conversation? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, I've always wanted to maybe mm-hmm. write about sports and I walked around that campus with my, Jaw dropped and really? just, you know, oh, yeah, I had no game face at all Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, you're in a conference room and it's the World Cup themed conference room with a bank yeah. of TVs with soccer matches from around the world on behind you. And, you know, you're in another room and there's a parquet floor, you mm-hmm. know, table from the Boston Garden. I mean, I just, you know, it's Disney World for sports fans. And yeah. I was just, you know, so I did not do that. But when you when you showed up. So when you showed up and saw Chad and, and offered those ideas, did you get. Put you know, run through the mill a little bit. I mean, what what happened?
1: So, um, I I'd gone up there basically, uh, and it, the I, the deal was they're just going to spend like the whole day there, like interviewing right. and talking to people. I mean, I think they had um, looked enough at my clips to be like, well, you can kind of do this. Like, you know, well, we've we've gotten some recommendations from some good enough people that we're serious enough to uh, let you do this. So, what was complicated was um, they Chad really, you know, he he wanted to see, he wanted me like some proof that I could do this. He wasn't just going to give me a job. And so he was like, Oh, why don't you write some freelance pieces for us? And we'll just see like, how, you know, if you can do this. And I think you can, I'd love to have some pitches from you. And I was like, you know, look, I really would love to do that. But, um, this, the Baltimore sun won't let me write anything that's not for them. And it was like, the sun was so weirdly like, protective of like they didn't want people to do anything but focus all their energies on the sun even if it had no conflict with what the sun was doing and they made you sign these terrible ethics agreements that said you know i'll i'll do nothing else but work for the sun and stuff and so i i told him i said you know look i i can't i and but i said the reason that you should hire me is because you should want me to do full-time work for you that it's going to make both of us happy and he kind of he's got that sort of cocky look on his face, and he was like, uh, "He's like, well, why why should I give that to you?" And I was like, "Because there's nobody better. You're not going to hire somebody better." And I was totally bullshitting. I was terrified, Don. <laughs> I was like, I, "I could, you know, you're like squeezing your like hands together under the chair to sort of try not to look terrified." And he laughs when I tell him this story later because he didn't really know how much I was bsing. But I was like, "Yeah, I'm the best person that you can hire for this gig," and he was like, "I love that." He's like, you know, every time every time I interview someone and they're like tell me that they're like the best person for the job, I end up hiring that person. It's so, like I think we're going to get something done. And I was just like, oh
0: my god. You owe your entire ESPN career to write Thompson. Totally. You know that yeah. Until right now. Yeah. I mean, you went in there with complete confidence, and, totally. but it's a, but it's a good lesson, right, for yep. writers. I mean, uh, I talk about this with uh, with Scott Price, uh, my mm-hmm. old buddy, uh, who's going to be a guest on here um, pretty soon uh, as well, about just confidence, the confidence that you need. Um, yep. Certainly, when you're trying to get a job, but when you write, you have to just as, as Scott puts it in such a lovely way. You have to be the god of your story. Yep. Um, and you write with a lot of authority, a lot of confidence, Kevin, and something I've admired since I've gotten to know your work. And Thanks, buddy. I wanted, yeah, I want to ask you, where does that come from? And when, I guess, when did you figure out you could do it and you had a voice that was confident and, and you, you knew you could do this? When yeah. was that? Was
1: there a story? Was it a moment? I, um, hmm. I When I was uh, 26. So... I was just kind of doing like um, I was covering like Navy football for the sun. Uh, and I'd just gotten out of doing high school stuff. Um, there was a girl who was a, a, a basketball player in my county uh, where I was responsible for covering. And her name was Raina DeBose and she had gone off to Virginia tech. Uh, and I, and as she had sort of gone off, I had gone off to graduated to be the Navy football beat reporter. And she had gotten really sick her freshman year at um, Virginia Tech. And it turned out that she had bacterial meningitis. And so uh, it was this huge kind of like whirlwind of, you know, she had been like a pretty big star high school wise uh, in um, our coverage area or whatever. And so this was back when the sun and the Washington Post were competing like head to head all the time, really trying to sort of, you know, cover the same areas and stuff. And so everyone was – Trying to get this story about, you know, was she gonna live? Was she gonna die? What was gonna happen to her? And my editor was like, Yeah, you gotta try. You, you know, you gotta, I didn't really know the family or I didn't know her all that well. I, I covered, you know, some games of her, but nothing particularly um, close to her. And so the family was really mad. They were like, Everyone needs to leave us alone. And the post was like, I remember trying to like sneak into the hospital to like interview people in the waiting room. And I decided I was going to take the opposite tactic. And I just wrote like a letter. And I said, you know, I can't imagine the horror that you guys are going through. But if you're ever ready to talk and tell this story or whatever, I will I would love to sort of tell it with dignity and respect whatever. And a family friend like gave him the letter, I think probably weeks and months later. Well, Raina ended up having both of her hands and both of her feet amputated. Uh, and so imagine like being an athlete, being a college athlete, you get sick randomly one day, you know, it seems like you have the flu and then you end up having to have both your hands and feet amputated. So randomly, like probably six months later, her dad called me out of the blue and I was like, Kevin, you know, I I really appreciated and respected how you handled that story. Uh, can you, um, do you want to come? We're having a birthday party for Anna. She came home from the hospital, you know, probably three weeks ago and we're having a birthday party. Do you want to come to her birthday party? I was like, oh my god, yeah. So I came in. I for a year, I basically like bounced in and out of her life while doing like Navy football and then Maryland football. And I kind of detailed the whole like her whole journey back to uh, Virginia Tech. She was determined to go back as a student. And I remember I I wrote like this really long first draft. Um, and my editor at the time, his name was Jan Winburn, amazing editor. She works at CNN now. And she had edited a couple Pulitzer Prize stories um, like feature stories and and she was kind of assigned to handle this and the first kind of like draft that I turned in with a lot of quotes and just like long quotes and stuff in it and she kind of asked me to kind of rethink this and sort of said you know like you're telling a story you know tell me a story in like a chronological way And so I had sort of made the decision. I had done so many interviews and had so many details for this piece. And at some point I made the decision that I was going to just anything that someone had told me that like had happened, I was going to use those like as quotes in in italics. I didn't put them in quote marks because I wasn't there to hear the stuff. But anything that was in quotes was things that I actually had overheard and overseen. And so it really like all of a sudden like framed it in my mind much better of like, this, you need to tell the story from the moment, like she's going, like she got sick to what happened to then the ending of her going back to school. And I remember handing it in to Jan and, and she was like, Oh my God, you get it. You actually like understand how this, like how narrative works now and you're 25, 26 years old. And I, and that that was the moment I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah, I guess, like, I guess I do get this. Like uh, prior to that, maybe I'd done like a, (laughs) bad gary smith impression in a lot of stories and you know but i honestly i don't feel like i it, i mean it it warms my heart to hear like you say oh you write with authority whatever because i don't feel like that way at all like i still feel like when i read write stuff or chris's stuff or your jerry jones story i feel like oh my god like i'll never fucking write like that <laughs> i'm just so kind of in my own anxieties i i do think that i have developed a, like a, a little bit of a voice of like a columnist. And so sometimes when it comes to writing things that have a lot of emotion in them or, or require, you know, just the right sort of precision of like sentences. And in some ways that that was how I felt when I wrote that intro for the last week's thing. Is I knew what I wanted to say and I knew that I could say it well and I knew that it would probably like people would be able to relate to it and that's where i feel like more authority than i do the long form stuff like i don't feel super confident writing long form at all um but i just work really hard at it and and go over it a thousand times in my head until i feel like semi-comfortable with what's on the page
0: so kevin do you write then with with anxiety do you write with let me ask it a different way do you write with sort of worry that this may not Live up to the material I have, or the expectations of an editor, or or, or any any
1: worry. Absolutely, yes, yeah. absolutely.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean there are there are writers like like you, yeah, who just almost write out of fear, and then there's then there's the other school of psyching yourself up. Um, the way I describe it is, you know, I report with total fear. I, when mm-hmm. I'm finding out stuff on a story and I'm digging into a subject, I'm always worried there's a whole bunch of cool stuff I'm not finding out. Mm-hmm. And um, but but when I finally feel like I've gotten a handle on it, talk to as many people as I possibly can, and sit down, I psych myself up into thinking I'm a lot better writer than I know I am. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit of a self con. Yeah. And just write with complete confidence and authority, and that—that's how I pull it off. I mean, that works for me. But yours is more just anxiety, and keep writing and rewriting until you feel you've—you've you've nailed it.
1: I ha- always have a moment in every story that I think this is terrible and I'm screwed. <laughs> and well, we all—we uh, all have that. We uh, all, they, yeah, <laughs> we all have that. <laughs> I'm—I'm I not a particularly. Um, confident and bold reporter i mean i think i'm a um i'm a very good listener and i if you put me um if you let me observe someone or you let me put me in a room with someone like i feel pretty good about what i can get out of it but if i have to chase down like a bunch of different people then i think that's uh, that's something i still like wish that i was better at that i was still like bold enough to find the right people and then know what to ask the right questions or you know force people to talk who really don't want to talk like those are still what i feel like are holes in my game and so Mm -hmm. when those when i get stories that require those kind of things that's when the anxiety sort of sets in and i and sometimes like what for me it takes is writing a draft and then understanding where the big holes are and then knowing how to chase those holes and fill in the details that need and then i feel like okay like now i feel much better about this
0: yeah. And that approach, which you just described of sort of writing a draft when there are still holes. A lot of times you'll write something early on in the reporting or, or even toward the end when you still don't know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes holes will reveal themselves as you're writing the narrative, right? I mean, I'm sure oh, yeah. that's happened to you. And, I, and, you know, Carl Hyacin, uh, the great Miami Herald columnist and author who, um, was something of a mentor to me when I was at the Herald. Used to say that to me. That was your moment when you were 26 with that particular story, and I love that story you just told. Mm-hmm. It was similar to something Carl said to me. He said, well, "You know, when you're reporting, you can start writing even though you're still reporting." Yeah. And I, I'll do that. I'll sit down and even not necessarily write it the way it's going to appear. I would hope in ESPN's magazine at some point, but just getting things down. You see holes. They mm-hmm. they reveal themselves to you of stuff. That you may not even realize are holes in your notebook, and it's it's a good exercise, I think, for young writers who are listening to try to do that. Particularly when you feel like you're really deep in the weeds on a story, yeah. where it's a you know there, when you, you you almost feel overwhelmed by the material. It's a good trick sometimes to How, work your way
1: out of it. Here's a question for you: How different was your first draft of your Jerry Jones piece than what ran uh, in in the magazine? not not very different I mm-hmm. mean it was
0: pretty that that one was one of those sort of magical stories that mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough that I had the architecture down in the first draft and knew mm-hmm. that I wanted to start I mean it's not it's not hard to figure out that you're gonna start a story when you see Jerry Jones dancing with a 31 year old blonde actress <laughs> in his suite you know uh, to it, it, you know at a, at a concert um, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the more obvious leads that leaps into your lap yeah. to know to start that but but I did figure out early on too that I wanted to have that scene in the bar when I met him and um, and the and the architecture of it I have to say was pretty much the way it was in the beginning I mean it's I wrote too long my tendency is to always write too long and I think he, too. The, yeah. yeah the first draft of that I think was maybe pushing 14,000 words and mm-hmm. ended up being more like I think 10 or 11,000 so a few thousand words got cut but it was pretty much the way I had envisioned it and laid it out but that mm-hmm. one was that one's was more you know profiles are a little I think for me anyway easier okay. than investigative pieces or you know um, th- those can be tougher of how to yeah. lay out but but it but, but it certainly was a lot of i certainly wrote through it yeah. often and and kept trying to make it stronger and mm-hmm. and uh but, you know, as you know, Kevin, you have great material. Sometimes you have great material, and it's that can be daunting. You yeah. know, it's just, you know, to, to use, you want the story, you want the writing to live up to the great material you know you have in your notebook, True. too. And how, how do you deal with that?
1: I think I I try to – I constantly, like, will try to organize things in my head. And um, I, I'm kind of one of those people who has to write a lead before I can write the second paragraph. I, I, I will definitely, when I'm doing the course of reporting – I see something and I'll think that's going to be the ending. Like I know that. Uh, And also sometimes I'll write that sort of scene, but I need to sort of start from the beginning and then build it almost like the foundation of a house or else it doesn't hold up for me because so much of, I think, you know, capturing a reader's attention is just right in that opening kind Mm -hmm. of scene. And, but you're right. Like sometimes it's super, I mean, it, like here's something we can share. Like think about that first draft of the Ray Rice story that we did and how different that was than what they ended up running. And in part because we were so exhausted and sort of like, you know, trying so hard to uncover everything possible. You know, you had written something where you were running on like four hours of sleep. And I was like, all right, let me take a crack at like framing this. And all of a sudden, I think for both of us, it sort of clicked when, you know, it was like, oh, okay. Now it's like, we're telling this, like it's a mystery unfolding.
0: We did, yeah. And let me just for our listeners. So, Kevin and I worked on a story that I think we're both pretty proud of in 2014. It was a TikTok that really explained uh, the evolution of the Ray Rice scandal in the NFL from the moment of the elevator video, um, the infamous elevator video that came out through TMZ in September of 2014 where Ray Rice punched his then fiance Genet uh, in the face. Um, but but it's from then all the way through that year the way the Ravens handled it and managed it and tried to and tried to manage it and tried to minimize it in many ways and also mm-hmm. the way the NFL managed and minimized it and and in particular Roger Goodell, um you know all the way up until the moment the story landed we did it i think in eight or nine days from the moment we started the reporting to the moment it was published and we wrote the piece i if i recall in a couple of at least one all-nighter but a couple of just frenzied i think two days and one night
1: yeah
0: um and and as you described um Yeah, I think the first draft that I that when I tried to frame it, it was just garbage. And you, I remember, (laughs) came in. No, I mean, this is exactly what happened. And came in and just wrote through it beautifully and framed it. And then we sort of, it was chapter form, and we sort of were going back and forth to Mm -hmm. get it in that same voice. And I do that with Seth, with Seth Wickersham Mm -hmm. now, as well, with chapters. And it just worked beautifully. But the the thing that I love about that piece, Kevin, I mean, my memory of it, and I tell people this all the time, is just... How difficult it was, and yet how hard we worked on it and Mm -hmm. worked, how hard you worked in particular, your sources. You had sources with the Ravens organization that you had developed in Baltimore and Mm -hmm. and how invaluable they were to the piece and making Mm -hmm. it bulletproof and making it stand up uh, in the way that it did. And it had enormous impact. And it's a story that, you know, people still discuss um, as being sort of the definitive piece about that entire scandal.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a huge. Huge story. That was probably the story of the year in the NFL that year. And um, I mean, I I had never done that kind of investigative stuff before. And so when you called me, you know, we had had like one drink before we had met briefly. I think at like the first ESPN gathering or something in Bristol. And so I knew you a little. Um, but I was just like, I don't want to let him down. Like that. I think the, I love that aspect of journalism when you're. Uh, and I'm sure you and Seth feel this way about each other is that you're just, you end up pushing each other because you're like, all right, this is a person who I like and respect a lot. And I really want to show them that I'm sort of, you know, a valuable teammate. And so that was what was pushing me a lot through that week was like, just don't let Don down, like do your best and overcome whatever like hesitation or fears you might have about really having to push, uh, subjects and get more information out of them by, by thinking about that.
0: Yeah, you, you, you did. And you certainly didn't let me down. I mean, you, you, you know, blew the doors off of it. And, and the thing about teamwork, um, that I want to discuss with you, how, how often have you worked with somebody else? Have you collaborated in the way that you and I did on the rice piece? Um,
1: not very often. I did, um, a couple pieces, uh, with another reporter at the Baltimore Sun, um, named Lem Satterfield, who, um, we kind of you know always joked that he was black i was white and we'd love to talk about like the interesting racial dynamics of of our lives and we uh ended up being really sort of good friends as a result of it and so he he was like the mayor of baltimore he could sort of usher me around and take me into any uh you know gym and stuff and and they'd have 10 people that he would want to introduce me to and stuff and so uh he would he would tell you this that he was you know. I was a stronger writer than he was. And so he just loved kind of unearthing stuff that then he would kind of hand to me and be like, shape this the way that you do and stuff. And so I had done a little bit of it like that. What's interesting, we think about like the draft and stuff Is I think one of the first things that I really learned at ESPN is that like magazine work is so collaborative and that it's collaborative with your editor like it's a they don't have their name on it but it's ends up being in so many ways like their story too and so you know Rayna kelly was a huge huge person in teaching me she's now the sort of executive editor at the undefeated and she was huge in like getting me to believe in myself that i could do this i could write good magazine stories and so we had a really good kind of teammate like partnership going and and then Christine Douglas was my editor for another year and a half after Raina left to go to the undefeated, and we wrote some really good straight stories together. So, like in some ways, like that collaboration is a huge part of like how you learn how to sort of see where your holes are. And you, I think a big thing that I learned had to learn at the magazine was, and it was totally different from the mentality that the newspaper was a first draft that isn't perfect doesn't mean failure. Like, cause it, at the newspaper, it was like, well, you, you hand in something at five, it's going in the paper at seven o'clock at night or whatever. And it's showing up at eight in the morning, the next morning, there was no right. discussion yep. about like, well, what, what do you think? Let's, who are the characters and what are their motivations in this? That was totally foreign to me. And so, uh, the idea that, You could turn in a draft and then you'd think about it for three days until you heard back from the editor and then they would give you a week to write it and you'd write three more drafts of it. That was totally foreign. I felt like a huge failure in the beginning because I was like, oh, they don't like what I'm turning in. And it was Reina that was finally got to me to understand, like, no, this is how it works. Like you turn in something and we give you feedback and you make it better and then we make it better and then we tighten the strings like all the way and up until publication. And so I have a much better understanding now of like you know, you uh, you have to do a really good job on what you think is a publishable piece when you turn it in, but then when you get feedback, you sort of realize like, oh, okay, like this is gonna be that much better if I do this. Yeah, it's really true. Um,
0: what was your favorite all-time story that you've done um, for the magazine, for ESPN?
1: So, that it was a story um, that I did with Eric Neal, uh, another sort of friend of ours and an editor. Yes, um, excellent and- editor. It was about as as is Reina and as is Christina. By yeah, way. it was about um, this football player named Adam Muema who he was a um, running back at San Diego State University. This is piece,
0: piece entitled "Hiding in Plain Sight," yeah. which will a we'll link, by the way, to the, to the podcast. He
1: so he went to the NFL Combine. Uh, he declared a, a year early for he'd he'd been he'd rushed for like you know like 1700 yards like two years in a row at San Diego State. So he was a really pretty good player and. You know, could have been like a fourth or fifth round pick uh, somewhere. Running backs don't have a lot of value in the NFL anymore. But he, he was a legitimate chance to make a team and and maybe get a shot. And at the at the combine, uh, he felt like um God was speaking to him and telling him that he should leave uh, the combine and he should go um. You know sort of and it wasn't necessarily like god like in terms of think of like a christian god but like this weird prophet that he had become hooked into by watching youtube videos and so he left the combine and everyone it was like a kind of a weird story i was like whoa this guy says that god told him to leave the combine but then he kind of disappeared and there was all this sort of question about was Adam going to show up for his pro day uh, like two weeks later after the combine or whatever. And so Eric was like, Hey, just go out to San Diego and see what you can do. And I don't know if this is going to be a story, um, you know, but I think this is a good fit for you. And uh, Chad and I kind of talked and we think that you should sort of chase this and so I was like, okay, great. And so I went out there and I basically like sleuthed around for a while and I went to his, his pro day and he didn't show up and he, I had had a number for him. Uh, that I'd um, gotten somehow and I had been texting him and he started like responding to me like he he I would sort of said to him you know I want to handle you know this story with respect like I've covered like religious guys before like Ray Lewis and I've I've written a lot about uh you know how important that is to him so I'm not coming at this from a place of mockery or whatever and had gotten no responses for a while But then all of a sudden he started texting me like the day of the pro day. And I I was at the pro day and I was like, hey, you know, are you going to show up? And he was like, I am here. I was like, what? You know, there's all these other writers like we're watching. They're like San Diego State beat reporters. So they're kind of quickly losing interest in the Adam Moema story. And I'm only there for Moema. And he was like, yeah, I'm watching you and through the text. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I had talked to a couple more people, talked to one of his coaches who had said, you know, I think this guy's he's having like a mental episode. I think he's going kind of crazy and it's really sad. I think he's got some sort of, you know, like schizophrenia or whatever. And so I remember I was in a coffee shop and I was kind of like just looking at his Instagram page and there was a picture on there of his pro day. And it was from like the opposite end of the field where everyone was standing to watch the pro day. And I was like, Holy shit. No way. And So I remember I raced back to the field to sort of stand at that same spot where I thought it was. And I was like, Oh my God. And so I texted him. I was like, Adam, you were telling the truth. You were there at your pro day, right? And he was like, yep, I was, I was watching everybody. And I was like, Oh my God, this story just got way more interesting. Like everyone comes to watch him and he's ended up watching them. And he like texted me some weird picture of him in like a, a funny, like mask or something. So I was like, Hey, look, you know, do you think we can meet up? Like I, you know, I, I know I'm the person who figured out you were there. And he's like, okay, come meet me at this address. And so I, I was like, okay, like tonight. And he was like, yeah, tonight. He was like, are you sure you're not the police? And I was like, yeah, I'm not the police. He's like, are you not somebody going to throw me in like a mental hospital? And I was like, no, I'm not that. He's like, all right, I think I can trust you. You seem like a good guy. Come meet me at this place. And so I drove to like this kind of weird San Diego neighborhood. And it was, it was like an address that was like, he'd given me an address that was like, it, sh- it. there was no house there. It was like one, you know, 1610 and then 1612, he had like given me like 1611 or something. And there was no 1611 on the other side of the street. So I was like wandering around the street and it was like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And I just felt like, like the hairs on the back of my neck were sort of standing up. And I was like, he's out there somewhere, like watching me and that ended up being like the end of the story and he essentially like confirmed later he was like yeah i just didn't know if i could trust you i wanted to like see you, check you out and see you and I, and so the whole story was like framed as like a mystery of like well, what are we finding out what is this guy's deal and it never mentions like mental illness in the story because it felt like you know It wasn't really my place to make like a diagnosis on that. But you could sort of leave enough kind of clues like breadcrumbs along the way. That was kind of Eric's idea. It was like, you know, we don't have to say that to make it clear that that's probably what's happening here. And it just was like, I remember writing the ending in like a coffee shop and feeling like that's kind of pretty haunting. Like that's pretty good. And and Eric felt the same. And so that's what I think when most people read that, you get to the end and you're just like, oh, damn wow. And it, I remember Eric's, he gave me the, I wish I remembered exactly what it was, but he said, he told me the story about like this composer who, uh, and this is such an Eric story, but like who had played this, like sort of symphony for all these people, or whatever. And it had, he had wanted to end on like sort of a note that left you sort of almost unsatisfied. Like you think that maybe you're going to get an answers. So you're going to get this, like an interview with Adam at the end of the story and the composer, like, so the composer like went upstairs after um the concert after he played this sort of last like unsatisfying note and the crowd was like really kind of disoriented it was like no what is that the end of the like the the musical and he was like that's what i think this story is it was like it it brings you like right up to that moment of anticipation and then it kind of pulls it back and snatches it away and leaves you like kind of like annoyed but like really intrigued and i was like wow okay yeah that works for me like i never would have thought of it that way but that works
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great kicker. So I want to, I want to read the kicker, just the last few, uh, paragraphs here. It's, it's fantastic. So it's, I waited for an hour that night, leaning on my car underneath a lamppost, listening to footsteps, looking for some sign. Nothing. He never took that first step out of the darkness. And it does, it, it, it's a great ending. Uh, and, And I remember just being blown away by that ending. Um, and it, it's and it's perfect. And it is, as Eric describes, it leaves you wanting more. I mean, it is a mystery. And, and the best mysteries don't always tie themselves up with a nice neat bow on top. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's great about the piece, Kevin, I want to read your lead because your lead is – and I'm curious about this lead. Is this a lead that you decided to write or was it somewhere else in the piece and then got moved up okay. before
1: I read it? I'm curious. Um, it was one that I decided that I chose. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, that was that's a great choice. So let me just quickly read this this lead because this in, completely draws you into the story. We waited, huddled in small patches of shade beside a field of synthetic grass. We checked our watches, fiddled with our phones, made small talk with strangers. Surely he was coming, right? If only to prove that he could still run as he always had with bursts of speed and strength. If only to show that he could still dance between defenders. We scanned the entrances and exits to the football field and looked to the sidewalks winding through the campus of San Diego State University. Was that him walking toward the field? Where was he? It's great, Thank great. You. Just two paragraphs, yeah. and then there's a copy break, and then it, uh, the story moves on to uh, pro day.
1: Sometimes, like when I get stuck on like a lead, I will read like a lot of um, old like pieces of fiction or like old you know stories that um, I. You know liked or felt inspired by and just picking up sort of the rhythm of of the however someone else uses their language sometimes like unearth something in me and so i would i would i don't remember this at all but i'd say there's a 30 40 chance that like i read a bunch of scott price like right before <laughs> i sat down to write that because he you know he's the person you know i grew up liking um riley and smith but like when i got a little bit older and i learned how to do this a little better like scott was the person who i most wanted to sound like because he just to me like his his story about the vesey brothers is one of my favorite stories of all time because i just felt like it's not flashy it's not kind of like showy it's just beautiful writing there's, there's an economy of language uh, in the choices of the words and so that's how I've always kind of tried to write. Like it's him and Tim O'Brien, who's my favorite sort of fiction writer. Um, that's kind of the, their style, and I probably uh, to almost to a, like an embarrassing point have ripped off that sort of rhythm of language in the, that they have. Yeah, but there is there
0: is a rhythm. It's interesting. It's an interesting point you raise. There is a rhythm. There's a music to language that sometimes you need to hear something or read something but put it in your ear when mm-hmm. you sit down um and it's it, it's inspiration i mean you're you're drawing an inspiration from it and you know i mean songwriters have talked about doing the same thing um mm-hmm. you know uh uh it, it it's it, it's an inspirational sort of note that you were taking and it it's um it's not to an embarrassing degree at all because it um you know it happens happens all the time yeah um, the importance of kickers, how important are kickers to you
1: and when you're writing your stories? De- definitely super important. I love um, I love it one of my so my favorite kicker ever is a story that um, Scott Rabb wrote about Pete Rose for GQ and oh, yeah. there's a it's called the hit King and I, it's I love it because it's so much of the story is perfect Rabb. It's like brutal and it's like he he pulls no punches on Rose and there's a line sort of in the middle of the story kind of about um you know pete rose is sort of i I wish i could remember the exact sort of but it was like you know he he's the kind of guy who you're like whatever happened to pete rose like he owns a restaurant somewhere like he's you know and the end of the story sort of circles back to that moment and it says essentially like you know, Pete Rose came up to bat more times than anybody in history and he never once connected with another human being. He owns a restaurant somewhere. And I just remember reading that and just feeling like, oh my God, that is so great. Like it just revealed Rose in the perfect, like his sort of awfulness and shallowness. And so every kicker that I think I've ever wanted to write has been like chasing that feeling of like, God, this is good. <laughs> okay. I'm going to read the Rab last paragraph. Okay. Of Hit
0: King. It, it's one of my favorite kickers too. I was smiling the entire time you were telling that story. Something happened to Pete Rose, a man as hard as a spear of boned ash. He gambled and lost, came to bat more often than anyone in baseball history and never once connected with another human being. He has a restaurant somewhere mm-hmm. you remembered it pretty closely actually I did, uh, yeah. kevin you did um <laughs> yeah it's it's great and it's it's ringing that bell it's what we writers talk about where you sort of you're planting the seed or you're ringing a bell earlier that sets up a kicker and we all do it and but i don't think anybody did it better than scott Rabb in that yeah. piece it, I, it is it's devastating it's a great last sentence
1: i cannot i i mean I, it's personal preference obviously but like people who just sort of like let their stories kind of like fade out and fizzle out. Or like if when they end them with like a, just a random quote, Oh my God, that, that makes me like physically ill because (laughs) you've worked so hard on a story. That's your one chance to sort of like smash the symbols or like play the sort of final violin sort of, you know, pull. And, and so I, I'm really rarely um, end stories with quotes anymore. Uh, and I think that's something I did a lot as a newspaper person because it just didn't. I was like, oh, here's an exit out of the, the, the story. Like was, I'll just have this other like kind of good quote. That's the one quote I have left over in my notebook. So this will help me turn it in make, make my deadline. But now like I will just obsess over, I mean, like, I wrote a story about Eddie Lacey earlier this year. Great piece. Uh, that, that Love that story. Got a lot of um, traction in I knew as soon as his mom told me about the star, the glow in the dark stars on the ceiling, that that was going to be my ending because that's such a universal thing. You know, here I'm trying to have get people to understand and have empathy for a millionaire athlete who, who can't stay in like tip top shape and you're doing it by sort of like making them understand that we're all kind of human. Like we all have our failures and our weaknesses and yet like, there was a time in Eddie Lacey's life when all he really wanted to feel normal was to look at glow in the dark stars on the trailer in his house where he was living because Katrina had destroyed his home, his one sort of sanctuary. And so I I knew that like Eddie was sort of saying throughout that piece, like I I feel like, you know, I'm a bigger guy and that's okay, but I can still do a good job. And, And if there's a kid out there who's like me, maybe he'll look at me and draw inspiration from that. And so I sort of took it to the natural extension of like, maybe he's sitting in his in his bed looking up at the stars and wondering about you know what's what's unlikely but what's possible and i when i wrote that at like probably like three in the morning i was like okay i think that works i think that's gonna be okay
0: (laughs) that was a great kicker and great story and highly recommend listeners to to find that as well so i want to ask you about praise uh, Mm -hmm. and accolades how Mm -hmm. important is it to you who's i guess whose praise is the most important to you
1: yeah i think it's your peers i mean i those are the people who know how hard it is and i there's a dangerous thing because sometimes if you if you take it to this logical end then you end up sort of writing only for your peers and not yep. for the the people who actually you should be serving that's right um so i you know we're going to talk about this i'm sure in a sec but like i got off twitter in part because uh i felt like it was sort of a junkie. you know makes you, it, there's it's a sort of irrelevant how how many retweets you get or how many favorites you get and yet that can't help but sort of shape how you feel about your story like if it doesn't get that sort of a reaction you can't help but feel a little bit like oh this story was a, a bummer and i think that's a really toxic mentality to kind of look at and think about like you you know you want i i you want your the people who you respect a lot so f- you know for me that's like seth and right and chris and those guys who are our friends to sort of say like hey you did a good job because I know Seth will be like I don't I didn't really like that story like why did you write it that way like he's not a bullshitter in that sense and so he will tell me like "Eh, nope didn't care for that one so I mean that's
0: he has said that to me as well, it is he's, not fun to hear. He's a dick, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he is. He can be, but but see, but then when he actually gives the praise, it's, right. it means that much more. You know, uh, much better. Yep. It's. Uh, yeah. I had a I had a colleague uh, at the New York Times that used to talk about praise, and I'll never forget it. He talked about uh, Hal Raines, the executive editor. <laughs> Um, You know, during 9-11, famously, he got the job right before 9-11, and mm-hmm. then the Times went on to win seven Pulitzers. Uh, David Johnston was his name. He was in the Washington Bureau, and he used to talk about praise from Hal Raines as a banana pellet. that's what he called it a banana and i said banana pellet what do you mean banana pellet? he said what they fed monkeys on the way to the moon or the way to space (laughs) i mean you know it it, it can also you know be you know not not mean so much because it happens so often and, and and you know and and that sort of you know sort of praise that for the sake of it and like you talked about with twitter um you know, you really can get obsessed with the metrics of Twitter, but mm-hmm. our business is metrics based. I mean, totally. we, we're, we know exactly how many hits our stories get. Um, in fact, our colleagues often know because there's a <laughs> weekly newsletter put out every Friday afternoon, uh, that actually can, will show those numbers. And, mm-hmm. um, and when you've hit it out of the park, you're happy that people are seeing it. But when it underperforms, you're not thrilled about that either. Um, um, when you got off Twitter, tell me why you why you got off Twitter. What was the what was the sort of main drive? I know we've talked about it mm-hmm. offline here, but tell our listeners why
1: why you decided to, to get 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 it out of your life. I feel like it was just sort of distracting me from doing the thing that I actually get paid for. And I'm not a personality. Like I I probably could be one if I wanted to be one. I couldn't do it like as as good as like like pablo or mina or two of our friends who are great at it but i think you know i could do that but that's not what i get paid for that's not why espn hired me they hired me to write stories and maybe i don't have um I, I was thinking about something as i was writing like a kirk cousins piece or a share and i had tweeted like probably three years ago like i don't really understand why kirk cousins is a thing that we continue to debate like essentially like sort of throwing off like, well, Kirk Cousins isn't good enough to be worthy of debate. And yet my whole story that I ended up writing three years ago was all about like, is Kirk Cousins like great or not? And so I was like, (laughs) it made me really think about, you know, Twitter leaves like this permanent record of all the stupid things that you say. And as a feature writer, anything that you comment on like sports or politics or whatever, potentially blows up a, a future feature that you could do. How easy would it be for someone, you know, to say like, hey, I didn't really appreciate this thing that you tweeted about me three years ago, so I don't think I want to give you access. I'm going to give this access to somebody else. Yep, for and sure. It's just, that's,
0: a, that's a big danger, for sure. Totally. Yep.
1: And there's just a lot of like, you know, there's this idea that you have to be on the right side of every issue, and if you don't speak out on Twitter, then you're sort of a coward when something happens with, you know, politics or something happens to one of your colleagues or whatever. And I just felt like a kind of, I just didn't want to play that game anymore. I mean, I'm—I have my own political views, and they're fairly obvious. Uh, I grew up; my dad was in politics, and so I don't really want to feel tempted to, like, share any of that stuff because that's—I shouldn't. Like, that's not my job. I'm able to sort of separate it as a writer, and I—I've written a ton of, I think, pretty good stories about people who are religious, and I'm not religious at all, and so I think I can handle that thing respectfully. Or they're conservatives, and I'm not conservative. Like, it's—it's it's really it's just a sort of a, a, a need for me to sort of separate that part from my life. And I, I think honestly, like the Twitter backlash is, is going to come. Like I don't feel, I, I like to think that I'm on ahead of the game a little bit. And I don't I don't know that I'm off of it forever for good, but I just needed like a six month detox because I would sometimes just sit and look at it for an hour and then realize like, I could spend this time so much better. Like if I sat and read a novel, it would be better for my like job as, as an ESPN reporter than than reading Twitter would, because it would make me a better writer reading that novel. And Twitter doesn't make me better at anything.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a complete time suck. It's a distraction uh, for sure. I, I find it you know way too much of a a waste of time more often than not, and you know you don't really get much back from it. And too often tweets are misunderstood, you know. As you know, Wright has been telling—I know he was telling you—and he's now been telling me that I should I should get off Twitter, and I'm and I'm seriously considering it because, yeah. uh, particularly, you know, uh, as you say, it, it 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 takes away from what you're supposed to be spending your time on, and and unless you're on there twenty four seven and you're a personality, as you said, and you're on there just to crack jokes, um, and you're pretty good at it, and it's helping build your brand. Why do it? You know, it's. Um,
1: I I mean, I do feel left out of the conversation sometimes, and I wonder – there's definitely – so, like, sometimes when I look at it, I have, like, a burner account that I don't tweet on, but I'll look at just to follow, like, the news, and and I used to follow, like, 1,800 people, and now I only follow, like, 250 And then what I've realized in looking at it a few times is that the people I don't follow now, they seem totally like irrelevant to me. Like I'm like, oh, I wonder what happened to this XX person. I haven't heard from them and whatever. I'm like, oh yeah, I don't follow them anymore. So I don't know what's going on in their lives. Like I don't know anything about have they turned out any good work lately? Who knows? And so I sometimes think about, Am I that to people? People just like, Oh yeah, whatever happened to KVV, like he used to write, you know, but it's just better for me right now, professionally and personally, to just not do it.
0: Yeah, it's amazing too how many people I know who are not on Twitter sort of officially with their name, but they have those those lurking kind of accounts yeah. um where they are able to keep up with a handful of people and it's always a couple hundred it's always that number that you said 200 mm-hmm. to 300 when i asked them it's not more than that because they say more than that it's just it's, it's unwieldy yeah it's, it's too it's you know the timeline is out of control so i want to talk to you a little bit about the sunday long reader experience sure. and uh guest curating um a week ago you did a fantastic job but especially the essay which um really got a lot of attention and richard deitch uh yes mm-hmm. uh, sports media guy um, reprinted it, which uh, Jacob Feldman and I were very grateful for because it drove a lot of new subscribers, uh, awesome. I think actually maybe nearly 500 at awesome. the last count, which is a remarkable number. Um, so the, the the theme of it is, t- tell our listeners who haven't read it, the theme and why you decided to sort of open a vein and the way you did and, and really open yourself up uh, uh, in, a, in kind of a remarkable way for this short essay.
1: Um, as I was reading pieces, uh, all week for, uh, the newsletter, right. Um, we kind of knew that there was going to be layoffs, um, that week of ESPN. And I've been through a lot of that with, I went through two or three more, probably four or five rounds of it at the Baltimore sun and now a couple rounds of it at ESPN. And I think the, the dread that you sort of feel, uh, whether you think you're potentially on the chopping block or not, you know that people who are going to get laid off that you're that you're gonna have personal relationships with them and you're feel helpless in that sense and so it feels it felt a little bit weird um to sort of think about like here's all the amazing journalism out there on a week when people's lives were gonna be really sort of shaken and and tra- changed dramatically. And um, I'm always a big um, advocate for writers who make themselves vulnerable to uh, their audiences. I think there's a real honesty in that, and writers who aren't willing to risk anything to me are—I'm less interested in reading them. And for me, that's um, that might mean one thing, uh, than someone else. But for me, that you know, kind of meant. Um, Putting myself out there, and so all of these things uh, kind of coalesced in my head, and so I wrote. Um, I think what I, what I would probably just sort of describe as like a love letter to journalists. For sure, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, journalists had, you know, saved saved my life in some ways, and uh, so um, in talking about um, my marriage falling apart and all the people who are closest to me, all the people who rallied around me in that moment were all journalists and they're uh, all guys who just said, you know, where are you going to be next week? You know, let's, why don't we all go to Montana and why don't we just um, watch football and and do this stuff? And, you know, that meant so much to me. It meant so much to my parents. Uh, And I wouldn't have known any of those guys if it wasn't for journalism. And so in just trying to kind of, I think, balance the appreciation for journalists with the reality of like you know this this industry can break your heart it can just kick you in the teeth and and people will who are not in it because of whatever anger they have about or they've been led to believe that journalists are are against this country or against their ideas later they will laugh and sneer and and kind of act like you you know you you i'm sure you see it on espn all the time i hope you're one of the next layoffs so anytime you write anything that sort of doesn't jibe with something and and people don't do that in other professions and i don't think anybody like mocks uh steel workers or coal miners or whatever when they get laid off Um, right yeah that would seem horrible that would seem horribly cruel but we're hell we're just as much of a an industry as, you know, I mean, there's more people who work at Arby's than work in the entire coal mining industry. How many people is work in media? An enormous amount of people. And yet people, you know, absolutely love to see journalists in in pain, in part because they, by nature, have to shake up uh, some of the the sort of hardened beliefs that people have. And so uh, that kind of thing, um, you know, whether it's eulogies or whether it's wedding toasts or um, goodbye letters, whatever, always been kind of good at that kind of stuff, uh, in part because I'm willing to make myself vulnerable. And so I got to talk about some things, uh, that I'd never talked about, uh, publicly on my own terms there. And so it was just the, I I don't know. I couldn't, I wouldn't tell you that like, I, when you asked me to, um, do the Sunday long reads that I had any like idea that I was going to, write something like that. But the more I thought about it, the more I just, when I sat down um, that morning, uh, you know, Saturday morning, whatever it was, I was like, this is what I want to say. And I'm just going to say it and screw anybody who, you know, doesn't like it.
0: Well, when it popped into my inbox, I think it was Saturday afternoon about two o'clock. Actually, I was walking my dog at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read it while I was walking Marley, my black lab. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just was so moved and I, I think I sent back to you. It's beautiful and it is. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful piece of writing and. Um, it's, I think, and I think you almost apologized or claimed close to apologizing for it being so earnest. And I was like, I like, I like earnest, Kevin, (laughs) earnest, Kevin's good. Um, I want to read this one paragraph. It's toward the end because I think it captures, uh, the piece for any listeners who may not have read it in the newsletter. My company had layoffs this week, as did several others. It's a tough time to work in media. You can't help, but feel a pang of survivor's guilt when your name isn't called. That was on my mind a lot as I read pieces of journalism for this newsletter. There are no words of comfort that feel like they'll make any difference to those left scrambling, but I'll say these anyway. This business won't love you back, but the people in it will. You're one of us forever. Just great. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a gorgeous piece of writing. The sentiment is amazing. I saw a number of people on Twitter. You probably didn't see this, but I did mm-hmm. who quoted that paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, young writers, um, a couple of young writers in particular who just thought it spoke to them. And so that meant a lot to me, um, that you opened yourself up in that way. And, um, you know, at, at, at a, Particularly special moment. I mean, a a dark moment, um, mm-hmm. you know, for our company because 150 of our colleagues were laid off uh, the week that you wrote that. Um, but I know a lot of our colleagues really appreciated it too because I heard I heard yeah. from many of them. So so thank you. I mean, that was just great.
1: I think it's just in times of like heartbreak, I think it's important to have someone you know who values your work or, or your friendship say to you 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 matter like you'll always be important to us and so that you know that's what those guys did for me when uh when i got divorced and and that's what in some ways like getting uh told you're getting laid off is almost similar emotionally to like being told that someone i don't want to be married to anymore and so that i think was really those threads kind of connected in my head for sure um, well, I don't want to end on, on this downer of a note. I think okay. Before we, before
0: we jump off here, I do want to ask you about one of your favorite experiences of your life. And that's in 2015 when you were the T. Anthony Polner Distinguished Professor at yeah. the University of Montana. Um, talk about that experience for our listeners. I, you taught a class on storytelling. You know, what, what did you learn? Um, I know that your students learned a lot about long form mm-hmm. um, and they were exposed to some of the best long form writing ever because I I, I'm, I saw your syllabus and it's like fantastic and I highly recommend. It. In fact, we should link to the syllabus as well sure. as people should yeah. see that because it's a great sort of classics uh, tip sheet um, that everybody should read. But what did you learn? What did your students teach you, Kevin?
1: Um, you know, what's interesting is that when I tried to um, figure out what I was going to teach them uh it, it really just reminded me uh, in some ways of like what makes a good story. And so I, in reading this, you know, I, I had for years collected all of my favorite pieces and I would sort of read them as inspiration or read them uh, just because they had sort of resonated with me at some particular time in my life. And so when I got the the, the deal is, is when you get to be a guest professor at the University of Montana for part of this um, professorship you get to decide whatever kind of class you want to teach there's no oversight there's no one telling you like well you need to have two more tests or whatever like you get to design the entire course and you get to give out grades based on whatever you think and so the the amount of freedom that that came with was really liberating and so i was basically like all right we're just going to read all my favorite stories and we're going to talk about why they're great and we're going to listen to music that i really like and we're going to talk about the elements of storytelling that's in these songs and uh so i played a lot of jason bell, and I, I mean i remember uh, the first thing that i i played i like the first class i think is i they came in and i just like without setting anything was like all right we're gonna listen to some music and it was you're so vain by carly simon and so the opening lines in that song you know you walked into a party like you were walking onto a yacht uh your hat strategically hung over one eye and your scarf was apricot and so i was like all right what can that teach us about storytelling and they were like i don't know what you're talking about I was like <laughs> you know here is carly simon in theory like describing whether it's warren Beatty or mick jagger or whomever describing like movement and describing like memorable details and the and it sets you right into the scene that gets you sort of hooked into this immediate you know narrative and so like you know, we, I played a lot of different songs where it was like Piano Man by Billy Joel or "Stand" by Eminem or, you know, uh, Super 8 by Jason Isbell and stuff like, you know, uh, um, I put a bunch of Isbell songs, um, and it slowly got them over time to understand that like details and characters and movement, those like songwriting is such a special sort of, um, unique kind of art form, but the th- you have to do that in like, like I think the whole um, elephant, one of Isabel's songs, that whole song is like 300 words, like 297 words, whatever. And he tells an entire story about this couple, you know, these friends, this woman dying cancer. And so I was like, let's listen to this song and learn how we could sort of use these kind of details in our own stories to make... The characters come to life and what kind how do you look for those kind of details and so every class basically and then after a while after i ran out of songs i was like all right you have to bring a song in and you have to tell the class about why what it can teach you about storytelling and so they brought kendrick lamar and they brought you know jamie buffett and they and there was a whole wide sort of uh sort of scope of different things it was just it was unbelievably fun uh it was such a sort of rewarding experience just to like when you hand someone um, Gene Weingarten's um, The Peekaboo Paradox, which is one of my favorite stories ever, and you get kids to understand why that is so special, like how it sort of unfolds, like with The Great Zucchini, and you figure out more and more about his background, and then the story kind of comes together like a piece of magic, and you see on their faces like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like long form can do this. That is so rewarding. Like, it's as rewarding as any story that I've ever written. It's like just letting kids. And, I, you know, most of those kids who I taught will never, like, do journalism for a living. But I think that they'll always think about that class as like, man, like I remember we read some really great shit in that class. And that made me realize storytelling was magic. And that's kind of what I wanted to sort of get across. That's
0: fantastic. That's so great. Yeah. I mean, you maybe they're not all going to be great long-form writers, like you said. But they're going to be great long-form readers. Mm-hmm. And we need more of them. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> we, we we need we need smart ones who can appreciate quality uh and and at the very least you did that which is fantastic but no that's that's amazing and uh and I love the use of music because as we yeah. talked about before there's you know there's a rhythm to writing there's a rhythm to a great story um you know talking about inspiration you know where so many uh, songwriters as i said earlier got inspiration from people that came before them just as we got just as you know gary and scott Mm -hmm. uh and rick riley you know taught taught you and i and i have i have my own set of them as well Mm -hmm. um you know the the beatles uh it was chuck berry you know, totally. I mean, they had they had music from the '50s, at the Beatles. When you and you can hear the influences, just mm-hmm. as you can hear influences. Um, I think from um, some of your writing, you know, you can you can maybe hear uh, the echo of Scott Price mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in some of what you've done. So, listen, man, I can't thank you enough. There's you many whiskeys in your future Sounds on me uh, for doing this, and uh, it's been really really great. Thank yeah, you nice. again for uh, curating the newsletter, and I'm going to ask you to do it again. See, if you do a really great job, Kevin, you got to do it again. That's <laughs> the right. problem. You should have screwed it up. It's but. like a a second
1: novel it's everyone can do a fun <laughs> novel but how many people can write a second novel right that's right
0: that's right so anyway thanks again kevin for the time i really bet, enjoyed bud. it All right. This has been Kevin Van Valkenburg has been my guest today. He's senior writer at ESPN, the magazine and ESPN.com, where he writes primarily about football and golf. Prior to coming to ESPN, Kevin spent 11 years at the Baltimore Sun. And as we just uh, talked about, he was the T. Anthony Polner, distinguished professor at the University of Montana in 2015, where he taught an amazing class, which I wish I could have taken myself on storytelling and music. This is the Sunday Long Read Podcast. I'm Don Van Natta. Thank you so much for making time for us today. We have Scott Price, the uh, aforementioned Scott Price, next here on the podcast very soon. So be here for that. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks.